0: Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization. Humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life is the love of life.
1: This is the Love of Life Podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Love of Life podcast. We have a special guest with us tonight, Dr. Dell Tackett. Um, he has quite the resume, so I'm going to go just through a few items here. Dell has hosted and taught the cross-examined television series. He also created several video series, including Who is Jesus? and Focus on the Family's The Truth Project. He also served as the vice president of Focus on the Family, Um, The Truth Project is a worldview curriculum estimated to have been seen by over 12 million people worldwide. He's also been a public servant. Uh, He has served more than 20 years as an officer in the United States Air Force. During the George H.W. Bush administration, he served at the White House as director of technical planning for the National Security Council. Um, In his background, he's also been a software engineer And uh, also, he is one of the founders of the New Geneva Theological Seminary, and he was a professor of numerous worldview courses. He's led and taught for years at the Collegiate Focus Leadership Institute, and he currently teaches, teaches as an adjunct professor for the Alliance Defending Freedom, Summit Ministries, and Impact 360. And this is just the short biography that I found today on the internet. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Thank you. Jesse, you could Talk have just said he's the tour guide and that would have been sufficient.
1: Well, I know, but uh, why not mention all <laughs> of the great credentials here and the things that you've done? So uh, mm-hmm. it is, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Tackett.
2: It's its my pleasure. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be with both of you and, uh, and uh, your audience.
1: Yes, very good. Uh, well, if we could start at the genesis, no pun intended, of your testimony, can we start at your personal testimony, either your conversion experience, were you raised in a Christian home? Um, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, I was raised in, uh, um, I would say, a church home is probably the best way uh, to put it. And uh, it was a mainline denomination. And so I'm not really sure that I heard uh, the gospel as, as we would talk about it today. Um, but I can't remember a time. I really cannot remember a time that I didn't believe in God, I didn't believe in Jesus, that uh, I read my Bible. But uh, it wasn't until I was in pilot training, and all of a sudden began uh, to go to a Bible study. My wife and I uh, went to an Officer's Christian Fellowship Bible study. And, you know, it was the first time, at least in, in my mind and my understanding, that I heard the, the gospel clearly. And so I tell people that a lot of times people say, well, I had the head knowledge and then finally got the heart knowledge. Well, I, I think I grew up with the heart knowledge, but I never had, I never had the, the, the knowledge uh, to, to, to match that. And uh, so I was in pilot training at Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock, Texas, and I went out into an old cotton field and uh, basically said, Lord, I, I feel like I've known you all my life but I've never said these words. And so um, out in the middle of a cotton field in, in West Texas uh, is where I made that formal declaration. And, uh, and but in reality, the, you know, my testimony is this, and that is that God is working in my life every day. And, uh, and I believe that, of course, as the scripture says, from the foundations of the world, uh, that he had put his hands upon me and you as well. But in this earthly life that he had, has been working with me all of my life. And uh, he will continue to do that until the day that I, I go home. Uh, so my, my testimony, is, I think, is not so much a moment in time as it is a, a lifetime.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Thank you for sharing.
2: Yeah, you bet.
1: Yeah. So um, regarding of some of the things that you've done, how does someone from a computer science background uh, go into all of the various things that, that, that you've, mm-hmm. that you've accomplished and that you've done? Um, and we can of course get to is Genesis history and the documentary sure. and some of the questions, but how, how do you go from software engineering to docu- documentarian?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you could, you could also say, how, how did you get from a, a ranch farm kid, uh, you know, to, to all the things that have happened? And the answer is, quite frankly, the, the fundamental answer is that I'm just kind of like this, uh, this rock that God plucks up and, and drops places uh, so, you know, when I went to the White House, I didn't ask for that. I, it wasn't on my dream sheet. I wasn't planning and scheming and working towards it. It's just all of a sudden I get a phone call that says, you've got, a, you've got an interview at the White House. That, and that's how, so that's how my life works, quite frankly. Uh, you know, the phone rings. And the next thing I know, I'm flying through the air uh, in, into a different world. And... <laughs> So uh, there, it really isn't. In other words, what I'm saying to you, there is no logical path. Yeah. Uh, that that I could really connect the dots in my life. In fact, I used to tell my students uh, when I was teaching at the institute, and we had college students from all over. And of course, college students are at that point in their life where a lot of them are very worried about their future. You know, you know, what am I going to do? Some are saying, what am I going to study? Uh, and all of that. And what I do basically is I go on the board and I, I draw these dots on the board and say, you know, okay, I'm a, I was a foreign kid out in the middle of, of uh, Southeastern Idaho. Uh, and then all of a sudden, my senior year, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri doing, and, you know, lost everything that, there. And then the next thing I know, I'm over here and then over here and here and here. And, and I tell him, you know, I, I couldn't plot that out. I couldn't figure that out you know, when I was a junior in high school, I had no clue. (laughs) And so I, I told him, I said, and you don't either. And so don't worry about it. Don't spend one second of your life worrying about your future. You know, if you are in Christ, then you have an adventure before you. And, and basically, you know, if you're, and I, I would tell him, I say, look, if you're afraid, and it's because God has painted over the windshield. I mean, we we can't see out the front of the car. And, th- and that's scary if you're driving the car. <laughs> but if you slide over and let him drive, then when the car stops and you get out, then just, you get out and wow, wonder what adventure awaits yeah. me now. And uh, that's the privilege we have yeah. uh, of being a child of God uh, yeah. with a father who uh, truly does love us. Uh, and he, he only does uh, have our best in mind, according to him, not ours. Yeah. yeah.
3: So how did you get interested in doing the documentary is Genesis history, or how did it fall into your lap or what phone call happened that got <laughs> you into that project?
2: Well, Courtney, you're right. Because it was a phone call and uh, I had not been planning on, on doing a documentary, but uh, I have a good friend, Thomas uh, Purefoy, who heads up Compass cinema in Nashville And uh, he called one time, I'm not sure actually whether I called him or he called me, but anyway, we we were talking on the phone, and we were talking about the problem that was happening in our seminaries, and the problem was that many seminaries were beginning to accept uh, what is commonly called theistic evolution. I call it deistic evolution. We can talk about that if you want, but uh, theistic evolution. And I have worked in a seminary long enough, taught in a seminary long enough to know that when seminary students, when you, when you drop a seed into a seminary, it doesn't just sit there. Uh, seminary students take that seed and they begin to ask questions. They say, well, if this is true, then, then this must be true. Uh, which is the right thing uh, to do, and so what was happening is that all of a sudden, our seminaries were taking the evolutionary theory, um, sitting on a pedestal of of theism, but it was the full evolutionary theory, and they began to ask the question: Is well, if if everything came about as a result of evolution over a, a long period of time, slow process, random processes, first of all, we can't see where God fits into this. Second of all, we don't see where there's a true Adam and Eve in this. Yeah. Because if if human beings, the the race of, of, of uh, Homo sapiens is just a long, long thread of of life that has broken out and so forth, then the whole notion of Adam and Eve has to be mythical at at best. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's some, maybe some sort of simile or, or analogy, poetry, uh, some other genre, but they can't be real people. well, If they're not real people, then the conversation that they have with God can't be real, and the notion of of not eating from the tree of life can't be real, and the fall can't be real. And if the fall is not real, well, then pretty soon you know where this is going. And all of a sudden, we begin to question Jesus, for example, because he, he speaks as if this is really true. But if it isn't true, then Jesus is either deluded or he's fooling us, or he's, he's also mythical. And, and then if we can take those first, the first half of Genesis, for example, and say that it's mythical or poetic, or whatever genre we want to use other than historical narrative, then why can't we do the same with Jesus turning water into wine? Why can't we do the same with the virgin birth? Why can't we do the same with, and he rose again on the third day? Maybe that too is all mythical. Maybe that is just some poetic form. Uh, so anyway, the, it was, I'm, I'm, taking too long to answer your question, but it's critical and it's important here, because what was happening is that people were taking a supposed truth that the current scientific paradigm had dropped into their Christian uh, epistemology, and from that logically began to question um, all of the fundamental truths of scripture. And so as we talked about that, we both uh, were frustrated because we didn't see anything, quite frankly, that really did a good job of laying out the positive case for the evidence that that the Genesis account was a true historical narrative. And so he and I started to talk about this, about what that would look like. And of course, Thomas, um, you know, was the the really author behind all of this, putting it together, trying to think through who are the scientists we can interview, where, and, and all of that. But our purpose was uh, to, to counter what was happening, but not to counter it with an attack if that makes sense. I mean, we didn't want this to be simply an attack. What we wanted this to be was a very positive presentation of the scientific evidence and the scientists that believe that evidence pointed to understanding Genesis as a historical narrative and not as a myth or analogy. Mm-hmm. And so, from that phone call, <laughs> uh, then all of a sudden, my life changed. Uh, and uh, and I, I don't mean negative by that. I, it was a wonderful experience, a positive experience. Uh, it, was, uh, it took a lot of time, but um, my time with those scientists was just precious time uh, that I enjoyed. and. And the Lord has put his hands on that. Mm-hmm. Um, now we can talk about that uh, anywhere. But anyway, that yeah. <laughs> Courtney, that is way too long of an answer to your question. Um, but that's what you got.
3: I love it. I like all the details. So that was
1: great. <laughs> she likes all the words. So you're good.
2: <laughs> oh, well, I'll give them to you if you want.
1: <laughs> when did you notice uh, in the seminaries, this sort of germ of theistic evolution being discussed and then embraced. What decade are we talking about? When was this kind of thinking um, discussed and talked about?
2: Well, I would say, uh, I mean, that's something I don't know that we can nail down specifically, but I would say what happened was there there, uh, began to be a very aggressive approach by a particular organization to take, uh, that theistic evolutionary position into the seminaries. And, and I'll just give that a rough, uh, rough guess to say, let's say 2010, mm-hmm. somewhere around that uh, timeframe well, when that began to happen. And then it didn't take uh, very many years before that uh, began to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what I would say is, is not good fruit, but it began to bear fruit uh, up until then um, Thomas and I began to talk about this. My guess is somewhere around 2015, 2014,
3: 2015. Okay. How long did it take for you to prepare for the film? Um, and then I did look at um, on the Is Genesis History website, the books that you read and that you um, cite. So I can tell that it was intensive, your learning. So just that process of what went into it, what did you have to research mm-hmm. and how long did that take?
2: Well, I don't, I don't really know what book you're talking about. I have, uh, quite frankly, I have a whole um, bookshelf that is, uh, I have all my books labeled basically uh, in, in, in my own personal way, but I, uh, one of those is uh, worldview slash science. And, and I have a whole stack of them. So I'm not really sure. Maybe you're talking, were you talking about Kuhn's book? Um,
3: no, there, it was a whole list. You had it broken down by okay. different categories. Right. I mean, there were.
1: Was that on the resources page? Perhaps? I
3: think so. There were tons of books and some were green. And those were the ones you said that were really, really helpful. But um, I mean, you had all different categories of science and resources yep. listed under it.
2: Well, the. And honestly, I have to point again to, uh, to Thomas Pyrford because he did uh, the yeoman's work of uh, preparation on that. And so uh, I basically trusted him when he would call and say, "Okay, here's here are five books you need to read," and I and I'd say, "Well, thankfully, I've read two of them, but I need <laughs> these other 3 uh, And you know, I'm telling you, some of these were about you know, the. Uh, Andrew Snell, Doctor Snelling's book, uh, books, volumes—you know, thick volumes—talk that uh, talk about primarily the radiometric dating, and uh, so those, those were—I'm uh, not—I wouldn't say they were tough to slog through, but uh, they were significant uh, to get through. But basically, the preparation was not a single preparation; it was a series of preparations. That uh, we did before, we then interviewed a scientist. So before we uh, we interviewed Dr. Larry Vardimer, for example, and that interview didn't make the film, which is interesting. We we had a number of incredible interviews that didn't make the film, and it it wasn't because they weren't great interviews, not because of me, but the content wasn't great. It was just because we couldn't fit everything in uh, to the documentary and. Uh, in terms of the flow of what we wanted. So it was very tough, you know, to cut out uh, some of those. But uh, Dr. Larry Vardimer, we talked about, I mean, we snowshoed, by the way, we got on snowshoes and we hiked up to the base of Mount Shuckston and uh, filmed underneath a glacier. Uh, You know, the incredible color of of glacier ice and uh, primarily talked about, the um the world after the flood from a climate perspective and uh the massive amount of precipitation that came uh, from the the kind of superheated oceans and the resulting uh ice age and the ice sheets and and so forth it was i just I, I loved it but before that you know i had to i had to read books on climatology and and all of that so uh if we were going to um to talk to Doctor Snelling about radio radioactive radiometric dating, then I needed to read books on that, uh, and and so forth. So it was a it was a process as we were filming. Uh, Israel's history uh, to get prepared, and I, Thomas was doing a whole lot more work than I was, uh, but uh, thankfully he you know he cold down. Yeah, I don't know how many books he read for each segment, but. He called them down for me, and uh, and that was very helpful.
3: Awesome. Will you release any of that footage that didn't make the film somewhere? Is that accessible somewhere?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, you've been on the website, the Is Denses History website, and uh, so there are a number of, uh, I've got them over here, but there are a number of uh, video series that have been produced by all of that extra footage. And there were hours and hours of it. Uh, so Dr. Larry Vardaman is in uh, one of those. Um, uh, there's several of the scientists that did, we get, couldn't get into the documentary are in those. Uh, for example, one is uh, Rocks and Fossils. And so all of that extra material is found in there. Um, so, if you wanted to see that, you could you could get those through the is Genesis History website. Perfect. Okay. And in addition to that, in addition to that, um, there are some great uh, teaching. Center um, pulled together a. I don't really know the best way to to label this. It wasn't really a conference. It was a, It pulled together a bunch of the scientists that were in, in just is Genesis History. And then uh, they advertise it to people who wanted to come and sit in the classroom and have these, uh, these incredible scientists teach them on certain things. So all that was filmed. All, that, all that's on the website as well. There's a wealth of information there.
3: Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I'm jumping ahead, but have <laughs> you seen the impact um, on the seminaries? Your original intent, have you seen some of that?
1: And this is roughly about five years ago that His Genesis History came out, correct? It's about five years ago now?
2: So there's been... Uh, I think it released in in 2018, 2017. Uh, You know what? You may know better than I do, but it was either 17 or 18. Okay. And uh, you know what? I have heard a lot of impact on individuals. It used to be wherever I... Went people would recognize me, and I'm not into that, by the way. I'm not. I really, I'm not into that. Uh, but they would recognize me in an airport or something from the Truth Project because that it really had gone all over the world, and uh, millions and millions of people have been through the Truth Project, and they're still going through it. And that used to be the primary thing that people uh, would say. It wasn't cross-examine. It wasn't who's Jesus. It was. It was the Truth Project. Well, now it it seems like it's almost half and half that mm-hmm. uh, um half the people will will come up to me and talk about the is Genesis history documentary mm-hmm. one of the things we don't we don't know we don't have a good handle on is how many people saw that i mean we know how many people were there for the opening night in fact wow. it was the, i don't know if you're aware of this it was the largest grossing film that night in america wow,
1: wow. that's amazing well, oh,
2: yeah yeah i we could talk about that. That's very, very interesting uh, what happened there. But uh, we know how many people bought tickets, so to speak, for that night and for the other nights and for the anniversary release and that kind of a thing. But when it was put on Netflix, Netflix does not give you the data. They will not tell you how many people have streamed uh, the film. Wow! So uh, all all we can go by is you know, it's anecdotal, you know, yeah. by people I see and hear from people on the website and, oh. and that kind of a thing. I have a, I have a good friend who his, his young kids, <laughs> that I think the way he put it, something like this, it, it uh, that, you know, they, they look at, uh, they look at that film uh, like they do some of the other films where kids watch over and over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, like princess bride or something. And he said, they must have watched it 15 times. Yeah. And I said, you're kidding. He said, no, no, they love it. They they say, oh, we're going to watch the Genesis film. And uh, so we we hear those things. But to get to your specific question, the real answer is we really haven't seen or heard of of an impact in the seminaries. Uh, That's... um, that's sad to me. But in reality, and I, I didn't say this before, that my target was not the seminaries. I, I mean, I wish I could change that. But once something gets rooted in a seminary, it's, it's almost yeah. impossible to, to get it out. Yeah. What I wanted to do, I wanted to do the best I could. My call is to the body of Christ, to get the God, body of Christ healthy and vibrant And light and salt. So, what I wanted to do was to present to the body of Christ uh, enough evidence for them to to be confident in the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Um, That they didn't have to uh, take someone's um, position that, well, unless you really have a PhD in geology and biology then, you know, you'll continue to hold these primitive views, you know, of, of the scripture. And and I think that is, by the way, that is what shocked the film industry. And you may not know this, but when uh, when this film was going to be released, the film industry basically saw it as a flat earth thing. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, you know, these are these. Which
1: Hey, I don't know. I mean, flat earth, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of making an odd comeback.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, so basically that nobody, I mean, how many flat earthers are there in the world, you know, and uh, (laughs) there can't be many. And uh, so they, they started by putting it in the smallest screen. Well, it got sold out. And so then they moved it up the next largest screen and that was sold out. And so there was a theater in outside of Nashville it had seven screens, and the night of the release, that was the only it was the only thing that was shown on all seven screens. And they still had people that uh, couldn't get in. Well, I'm point. not saying that for me. I mean, I, what I'm saying is that it was a, a revelation to the film industry yeah.
1: that
2: uh, there were a lot of people, and and I just thank thank God for this. There were a lot of believers, a lot of Christians that I think desperately wanted to believe the Word of God, to to say, you know, if somebody's going to tell me now that I really can't understand this, you know, then basically, you know, we're back to a pre-reformational form here, that I've got to have somebody, you know, tell me what all this means, as opposed uh, to the reality that the, the believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Uh, the spirit of truth, who guides us into all truth, and what was happening is that Genesis was all of a sudden, you really, you really can't understand it, it looks like it's a historical narrative, but no, it really isn't, and we know that, why, because, and I, I don't mean to be sounding the way I'm sounding, but no, oh, no, feel
1: free.
2: Well, but feel it, it bothers me. It bothers me because yeah. what was happening is people were basically saying, you, you are not uh, intelligent enough. You have not been trained enough to recognize that what appears to you to be historical narrative isn't really, and it really has to be understood more as myth or poetry. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, there is a, a large number in the body of Christ that that didn't sit well with them, and it shouldn't sit well with them because everything else in this scripture leads us to understand who we are in Christ and what it means for the Spirit of God to dwell within us, uh, and that we don't need uh, for people to to tell us that no, you can't really understand the scripture. And uh, so, anyway, that was that was exciting to me. Uh, you know, I wish there was uh, I wish there was a A reformation going on in the seminaries in that area, but we'll have to wait and see what happens there.
1: Yeah. What do you say when some Christians will kind of essentially be arbitrary regarding Genesis? They'll kind of say, well, it might be literal, it might not be, but I can still have this relationship with Jesus Mm -hmm. and essentially be. It's kind of a form of syncretism that I've seen among some Christians, where they're holding on to theistic evolution, and they also are claiming Christ as well, and they're kind of looking at the Genesis account not as literal; they're looking at it as poetic or infusing other meanings into um, the various, at least the first eleven chapters of Genesis.
2: Right. Yeah, and and basically, let me let me respond to that this way because basically there are two fundamental issues. Uh, that are underlying this whole issue. Uh, number one is how, how we interpret the Word of God, in, in the, the hermeneutic, I guess you could say, uh, and that is how do we read the Word of God and how do we recognize when we're reading poetry, uh, when we're reading parable, when we're reading um, analogies, when we're reading prophecy, and when we're reading historical narrative. And so that's, uh, you know, that's hermeneutics. That's, that's the, the study of how we read the word of God. And it's not, uh, we're not backing in to say, well, wait a second, didn't you say you don't need a PhD? And I said, no, you don't, <laughs> because it's common sense, right? Yeah. I mean... When we read the Psalms, we know that it was written. It was written to be sung. It's and so there, there are, um, there are a lot of sections in the Psalms that are poetic. Mm-hmm. You know, when we read uh, about um, God covers us with His feathers, we don't have to say, you know, I wish I had a PhD in in literary theory to be able to understand whether or not God has feathers or not. We know that our kids know that. Um, So when we look at the scripture, it's the common sense we need to understand. Are we reading historical narrative here or are we reading something poetic? Uh, Remember Paul in Galatians, uh, when he's talking, uh, he's talking about, uh, the, the, the two wives, you know, of Abraham. And he said, this is an analogy. So he tells us an analogy, uh, in the book of revelation, right from the very beginning, we're told, okay, these, you know, this, this means something else, you know, these are churches. They're not, um, so the scripture helps us in, in that. Mm -hmm. But so the first thing is, are are we interpreting the scripture in the proper, uh, we'll we'll say genre. Mm-hmm. Some could say literary devices or whatever. We'll just say genre. Sure. Are are we looking at the, the scripture correctly in in its correct genre? That's that's one issue, and then the other issue is time. And um, and that element of time is is critical for how people then want to interpret the scripture. So I'm going to do this if it's okay. So there, okay. So <laughs> I don't know if it'll work or not. I'm going to see it. So there are there are four different approaches to this whole issue, which is basically a philosophical issue. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And so forth. And and so fundamentally, we're dealing with uh, a... a um, a scientific philosophy, when we talk about where do did, where did we come from, how do things begin, because you can't, you can't take those into the lab and test them. So it's science trying to answer a philosophical question. Well, the current paradigm that exists, the one in w- which basically rules and reigns today, the, the, I'll call it secular evolution, Okay, that's the current paradigm. That's, that's the one that rules and reigns. Uh, if, you, if you don't, uh, I'll say, if you don't bow down to this paradigm, then you'll be called unscientific. Uh, you'll be called wacko. You won't get anything published. Uh, if you raise an issue against it, uh, you'll be canceled. So that's the first view is secular evolution. The second view is what I call uh, deistic evolution, uh, commonly called theistic evolution, but I, I call it deistic evolution because I keep asking um, people who are theistic evolutionists, I ask the question, well, what is it about evolution that you find lacking that you think God has to step in you know, and make it all work? Right. And the answer has always been, what do you, why do you think I find anything lacking in evolution? And I said, well, then, I don't understand what you mean by theistic evolution. You know, if God has no piece and part of the evolutionary process, if it truly is just a random process and everything came as a random process, then where is God in all this? And the answer is always, well, he's, he's there. He's behind it all. So I, I would rather call it deistic evolution. That's, that's the acknowledgement that God is there, but he has nothing to do with it. I mean, he, okay, so those are the, those are the first, two, first two views. I don't know if I'm going to be able to hold these up here. Okay, so you have the, these two views. And then the third view is what I like to call deep time creation. Okay, so these are people who, who want to read the scripture. Um, they believe in the miracles uh, in the Bible. They believe in all of that, except for the Genesis account. Yep. And the Genesis account has to be changed. And the reason is because they believe in deep time. It's commonly called old Earth, uh, but quite frankly, the Earth—I think the Earth—is in in the thousands of years. That's old, right? I mean, I'm old. Yeah. But I'm not a thousand years. Uh-huh. I'm not a hundred years. Pause right there. So that's uh, that's one of the questions. Of course, that would be we would be remiss in not
1: asking you. How old do you think the Earth is? That is that would be the question at this point to ask. You say thousands of years, roughly.
2: I I would say we're we're talking about uh, no more than 10,000 years. So we're we're in the, uh, I call it the kilo, the kilo range. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is um, the, the historical, literal, um, looking at Genesis from a historical uh, narrative perspective. There are differences of opinion in, in terms of how many generations, but it, that, you know the the bottom line is that uh, my position is that the genesis account is the historical narrative of what happened mm-hmm. okay now what happens in this view this view is that people here have first of all bought the truth in a in a primary fashion that the age of the earth is what the current paradigm says it is right so if you buy the the current paradigm's understanding of time but you want to believe in and, and Jesus the miracles and all of that then you're forced into this position that I call deep time creationist which means you believe that God created but it was more of a punctuated creation mm-hmm. So after several billions of years, you know, God creates light Uh, after billions or, you know, not light, but he begins to uh, create living things. Uh, But there are millions of years uh, between the time he creates uh, plants and then he creates uh, Adam and Eve. So they, they would believe in a, in a real literal Adam and Eve, but it's, It's sitting on top of deep time. So, one of the issues associated with this understanding is uh, the flood. So, the flood, because so much of our understanding of deep time comes from the rocks, geology, and so forth, all the way back to Lydell and, and when everything began to change in terms of the age of the rocks. Um, that all of a sudden the flood could not be a historical narrative as well. And part of that's because, well, if you make the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Genesis mythical or analogy or simile or whatever, then you almost have to make the flood part of that as well. And so um, these folks on the whole would, would then, uh, look at the the Noahic flood as a local flood. Mm. All right, that preserves then the the premise of, of deep time. Mm-hmm. So then we then we have uh, what I would call historic uh, creation.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: this is often called young Earth creation. I think that carries a lot of baggage uh, because again the you know young earth well what does that mean right okay so i think the primary way to identify these people are people who look at uh genesis and believe the account of genesis is historical narrative and should be understood as historical narrative interpreted that way and then uh interpret what we see in the world around us in the light of that rather than interpret the world around us uh, based upon the premise of deep time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, well, so there are kind of two different sections here. So this this group believes in the evolutionary theory. One believing that their God is also out there somewhere. This group believes in in a, a creation a creator. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
2: but this group follows the first two in terms of its understanding of how old everything is. Mm -hmm. All right. So, okay. So now I all, Jesse, I did all of that because when someone then comes to me as, as you were asking Mm -hmm. and says, well, you know, I don't think it really matters. You know, whether, whether you say that Genesis is all mythical, I just believe in Jesus well, then I think it's important to say, okay, what are the implications of that? Because that's what's happening in the seminary. Right. Uh, and uh, so let's, let's walk down this path ourselves. Because if, if Adam and Eve aren't real, then the fall isn't real. Yep. And if the fall isn't real, then we don't need a savior we, I mean we have to come up with another reason why we live in a fallen world why why there's evil in this world? Where do that come from uh because if evolution is true, then death and and dying and uh murder the the survival of the fittest that has been a part of everything from the very beginning yeah you know and as Thomas will sometimes say. You know that means that Adam and Eve's parents may have eaten eaten their brothers and sisters All right and uh so I try to help people understand the implications mm-hmm. of of their belief and look at Jesus how Jesus pointed back you know when he said in the beginning God made the male and female well uh that is that is contrary to evolutionary theory right so you you've got you've got to um You've got to come to grips with the, the implications of that position and then ask yourself, why is it that you want to hold to that position? Right. If you want to hold to that position uh, simply because you think, well, I think science has it right and the Bible doesn't, then okay, that says something. Yeah. There are a lot of people who want to hold to that position because um, they're afraid what happens. You can't teach in a school. Yeah. Um, you won't get published. You won't. You, in some places, you won't get into graduate school. Sure. So let's let's talk about why. Because, quite frankly, and I think we showed this in the uh, in the Genesis film, that real Hebrew experts know that Genesis is written in historical narrative. Right. I've even software programs that you know that you know, look at all of the verbs and all that kind of stuff. And it comes out to be uh, one of the most historically narrative pieces in the whole scripture. And so there's something that has to drive you to want to interpret it in a different way. What is that and why?
1: Yeah. I know some will look at sort of the gap theory and they'll say there's an enormous gap between the first two or three verses in Genesis. Mm-hmm. They'll point to that. How would you refute the gap theory and say, no, it's not deep time or old earth? We don't see, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then, you know, there's this gap that is espoused by by some um, theistic evolutionists, by some Christians, even who will say, look, there's this is where we get our millions, potentially billions of years. How, how, How would you refute that?
2: Well, I would go through the same process again uh, with, with a couple extra things. But uh, number one, I would say, okay, first of all, tell me what happened to that gap. I mean, what was going on in that gap? And uh, and, and sometimes I'll get some really remarkable answers. That, well, this was going on in the earth. He created everything. Actually, there was another fall uh, before that and so forth. That's And uh, so I said, okay, wh- where do you get that? You know, and why? In other words, why do you have to have a gap? Well, the only reason you have to have a gap is be- is because of time, right? <laughs> time is the issue. So time is what's driving. It's not. It's not the text. No. The text doesn't drive you to the gap theory. What drives you to the gap theory is the, the current paradigm is right in terms of the age. So you can't. The, the text doesn't take you there. It's a presupposition. And then the other thing to me is is, the, is just a compelling uh, passage. If we believe the word of God, uh, when when God was giving the the commandments to Israel, and He's talking about the the Sabbath command. Mm-hmm. It says as clear as, as it can, for in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And if that's not true, then we've got a whole lot of problems with the entirety of the scripture and how we under, understand it. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is a, is a difficult passage for people who hold to the gap theory Mm-hmm. Um, but but in my mind, we have to say, okay, what is driving you first of all to the gap theory? Yeah, and and then I would say I'm not uh, I'm not fully convinced that that premise that you're holding to is true. Yeah, I think there is sufficient evidence, uh, understood by a lot of crazy uh, intelligent scientists, who believe the data points to the fact. Uh, that God made the heavens and earth in six days. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And like you said earlier, it, it does go back to your hermeneutics, Yeah, how you exegete a passage. I know some will point to the Psalms and say, well, see, look, a, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And then they'll go all the way back to Genesis and say, hey, if a thousand years is like a day, day one could have been a thousand years and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I don't think hermeneutically, that works. It's, you're talking about poetry in the Psalms in an actual day, day in Genesis.
2: Yeah. And you know, sometimes I, you know, when people say that, I not it depends on how well I know them. <laughs> I <laughs> say, so does that mean that Jesus was in the belly of the earth for 3000 years?
1: Right.
2: Right. If a day is a thousand years. And Jesus said he was, it was Jonah in the belly of the whale for 3000 years. Yeah. How, well, how do you, if they say, well, no, then what, what drives you to that? Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and, you know, if we talk about those words, I've never really understood why the, um, the issue has been always focused on the Hebrew word yom. Yep. Uh, because in my mind, it really should be focused on the preface to each one of those. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And it's true. People look, you know, look at the ordinal in front of each of those. It's the only place in the scripture where if you have an ordinal first day, second day, and so forth, it's, it's a literal day. But in my mind, the scripture can't make it any more plain mm-hmm. to us to say there was evening and there was morning the first day or second day. And it's repeated right. on every one of them.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so, you talked to a lot of different scientists and was there anything that surprised you? Was there any bit of evidence that you saw during your travels and you look like you went to a lot of places mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're, 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 in mountains in some places you're in, near an ocean. You're in George Grant's farm towards yeah. the end of the documentary. Um, was there anything that you thought, wow, this really stood out as something that you, that you learned or changed you, or maybe even brought more understanding to your view and understanding of Genesis?
2: Yes, sir. I I think the the whole notion of the soft dinosaur tissue and, and seeing it under the microscope, looking at it and it's stretching. Uh, and, and later on, I'm not sure you're aware of this because uh, it, it certainly wouldn't be publicized on CBS and NBC and everything, but um, they are finding so much soft dinosaur tissue now that uh, they're believing it's the norm. Wow. It's not just some one-off strange thing that happened here. It's now uh, increasingly be considered the norm. Okay. So that was, that was really something. Yeah. You know, that, that's, uh, that was fascinating to me. And um so uh, the other one that I think of is the time we spent with Rob Carter, uh, Dr. Rob Carter, and if you may remember he's he's talking about uh, how the the genetics has this what fourth dimension he was talking about, or fifth dimension, mm-hmm. uh, where it it reprograms itself, but it has to have all of that intelligence in the beginning to know that when it folds over, it creates a new set of code. Um, that was fascinating. You know, I'm a computer scientist, software engineer, and that was all fascinating uh, to me.
1: Yeah.
2: I think the third one was uh, when we were with Dr. Joe DeWeese and that, I don't think that made the, the original documentary, but he was talking about the research that's being done in while well, he was doing cancer research, when they were looking deeper into this the living cell, uh, Francis Crick in the very beginning, when they discovered the the DNA, uh, they knew that the instructions for all of the things that the cell needed to replicate—if it needed a new axle, if it needed a new carburetor, whatever—all the instructions were buried down in this this helix, and they didn't understand how that helix was opened up in order for things to read that code um, because it was pulled apart at one end, then it would supercoil, coil. Mm. Uh, and uh, so he said he didn't know, uh, but they knew it worked. Uh, and he, and uh, so when he, Dr. Joe DeWeese was saying, well, we know how it works. And I said, well, how's that? And he said, well, so the cell, let's say it needs a new carburetor. And the instruction set for the carburetor is down at mile 483, you know, in the DNA. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this little machine called the Topoisomerase, and and he said, "We have no idea how the Topoisomerase knows that the cell needs a new carburetor, but it does, Mm -hmm. and it goes down to the exact spot where that instruction set exists. It clips the DNA at the top of that instruction set and at the bottom of the instruction set. It pulls it out, unwinds it, and then the you know, the little machines come in, they read the code, they go off and make a carburetor, and the topodont isomer sits there and waits until you get a thumbs up, we've got a good carburetor. It winds that section back up, the right number of turns, slips it back in, welds the top, welds the bottom, and then it goes away. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Really? And he said, yes, really. And uh, and I said, well, is this common knowledge? And I said, yeah, yeah, We, you know, it's been discovered. We know that everybody knows it. And I said, well... You know, quite, you know, I didn't say it these way, but why don't people fall down on their knees and go, you know, <laughs> praise God for what he's done? Uh, and yeah. he said, well, and, and you know this as well as I do. He said, he has eyes to see yeah. and ears to hear. And, you know, I have that same, uh, we're doing a follow up to this Genesis history. In fact, this, uh, this just last week, we were filming a segment of that and we're going to reveal a, a discovery that I think is going to basically call into question the entire geological timetable. Wow. Oh yeah. It is.
1: Is there anything you can share?
2: It's even even more exciting than the the soft dinosaur tissue, I believe.
1: Really? That was very exciting. Oh yes. I I was going to reference that at some point tonight and say the the soft dinosaur tissue was very interesting. It was very exciting to see. So, So this new discovery is something that you think is beyond that?
2: I think it's yes, it's far re- it's farther reaching than that. It's wow, uh, it really it should. Again, he has eyes to see, ears to hear. It should call into question the entire geological timetable. Wow, uh, but I'm I I know enough through all of these experiences to believe that that's true. That you know this uh, this sequel, the to the Genesis film, the sequel that we're making is not going to cause scientists all over the world to drop their knees and, and thank God. You know, God has to open their eyes first. Uh, yeah. He has to prepare their heart. And uh, he's the one that has to draw them. Uh, but again, my, my heart is to get the body of Christ healthy and strong. Yeah. And uh, so what I want to do with this next film is to come back and reinforce again. You can trust the word of God.
1: Yeah, yeah. With the, uh, with the dinosaur tissue, has there been any type of follow-up regarding some scientists who are looking into that going, huh, this kind of destroys our paradigm? And, and I know some will continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but are there any evolutionary scientists out there that go, well, maybe the dinosaurs all didn't go extinct millions of years ago at this point? Have you, have, have you heard any follow-up from that?
2: Well, the, there are uh, Christian scientists uh, that this is giving pause to them. Uh, Christian scientists who are in maybe one of these areas oh. and people who are in maybe one of these areas um, and hopefully shoring up people here. I don't think it'll have any effect on people here yeah. uh, until God opens their eyes and uh, gives them a new heart. But um, one of the problems Jesse that they're facing. Let's say, let's say that uh, you're a you're a geologist in a, in a major university in this country, and all of a sudden you begin to question the evolutionary theory. Your job is now in jeopardy. Yeah, and so, uh, and I don't. I mean, that's the reality. You know that that was the what was the film that was made? Um, you may recall there was a film that was looking into the whole thing that happens in the academic world. When somebody begins to question the current scientific paradigm,
1: was that expelled with Ben Stein? Yeah. Is that it?
2: Okay. Yeah, I was expelled. Oh. And, uh, when I did the, uh, when I did the film uh, or when I did the TV show cross examine, one of the shows we did was on, um, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, Guillermo Gonzalez. Uh, He authored, he was a co author on a book called Panda's Thumb. Hmm. I think that was the title of it. And anyway, it was basically a a book that was putting forth the notion of intelligent design that everything we see around us leads us to believe that random processes couldn't do this. Well, the bottom line was he was denied tenure uh, and eventually was uh, left you know, his position at, uh, at his university. So uh, the current paradigm is a strong, strong uh, paradigm. And if you try to kick against it, it's going to cost you a lot. So uh, I'm answering your question this way by saying, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have heard of uh, people who are not in that position where I have to protect themselves. So I've heard of, I've, I've, in fact, I was just uh, a week ago, I was talking to a guy at a PhD in geology. Mm. He's not teaching in geology right now, uh, but it radically changed his positions. Wow. Because he had, there was no other, there was no motive for him to, you know, to fake it, that he believed the old paradigm. And uh, so, and I've talked to a number of of people who are in the same kind of situation. So, and I'm thankful for that because basically what we're trying to do that. We're trying to say, okay, here's the evidence. Here's what it looks like. Yeah. And here are these incredibly smart scientists who believe that that evidence supports the historical understanding of Genesis.
1: Yeah. At some point with all of the evidence is coming out, what you're going to be releasing in part two of this documentary with the dinosaur uh, proteins being found. Is there at some point evolution to me is a house of cards that will eventually come tumbling down. The question is when. I think with even all of these discoveries that have come out, we're going to see the toppling of this construct that has not only plagued the world in secular humanist thinking, but is sadly and unfortunately drifted and come into the church. Um, do, Do you see in your lifetime, in the next decade, perhaps, as these discoveries are being made, the public school system that obviously teaches evolutionary thinking Uh, And elsewhere, do you see them having to take pause to go, okay, maybe, maybe we got this wrong somewhere along the path?
2: Well, it's a great question. And I, I think uh, the same way you do that the current paradigm cannot um, subsist. And the reason is because the evidence is, is becoming overwhelming. I mean, there's you can only, you only cover your eyes and cover your ears so long Yeah. And that's what's happened in Kuhn's book. He talks about each of these paradigms that have arisen and eventually they collapse. Why? They collapse because there's so much evidence that is contrary that it just collapses and then a new paradigm arises. And so I agree with you. The current paradigm is uh, in peril and it's in peril primarily because of the, of the microbiology discoveries. That's primarily. Uh, what's happening, and I'm I'm hoping what what uh, we're going to show in this Genesis film that it's going to cause people to say, "Wait a second, you know, w- we've been wrong about these geological timescales as well." That, um, but something has to happen, and you know, we've already talked about the only way the only way that that people who don't know Christ don't don't believe in God are going to come to faith in him as a result of God opening their eyes. It's not going to be because of the evidence. Now, God may use that evidence, um, but that won't do the change of a heart. And a heart will remain closed, eyes will remain blind, ears will remain stopped until until that happens. However, in the history of scientific revolutions, as Kuhn wrote, this current paradigm is prime... Uh, to collapse and it's prime to collapse primarily because the complexity of the design in life Mm -hmm. that includes also the complexity of the, the world around us and the, and the, uh, the differences of opinion now between the big bang and people who are saying, no, it couldn't be the big bang because that has a beginning, but it can't be an eternal universe because everything would be dead and cold. Um, Mm -hmm these conflicts, these contradictions will grow to be so large that I believe it will collapse. And the question is what will replace it? Right. And uh, right now, I mean, if this were to happen today, uh, my guess would be <clears throat> that uh, it would be a, a quick response. Aliens did it. Ah, uh,
1: Yep. I was going to go there.
2: Yep. Right. Yeah. Because... Uh, what that allows us to do it allows us to hold on to our naturalistic philosophy, which is the fundamental basis of the current paradigm
1: yeah
2: so the current paradigm says that you, you cannot anything that you, you talk about scientifically, you cannot point outside the box that's part of this paradigm it's not part of the paradigm that the uh, Johannes Kepler was you know where he said you know science is the investigation of uh, the external world to discover how did he put it? The uh, the rational order and harmony imposed on it by God. Okay. That paradigm is no longer in place. The current paradigm is based on naturalism. Oh. So any cause has to point to a natural cause. It can't point outside the box. If oh. you point outside the box, like Dr. Uh, uh, Gonzalez did say, Hey, we think there's an intelligent design here. Then you're canceled. You're out. Yep. So, that philosophy, I think, will remain, but the paradigm will collapse. Well, what can we point to that will bring about some kind of design in all of this? I know, an alien. Yeah. And uh, so that could well be um, what will happen in a new paradigm, that we just say, okay, well, an alien did it. Because <laughs> um, essentially that's what Crick di- uh, did in his theory um uh, uh, pans pans for me a directed pans for me hmm. because he said, look, when they discovered DNA, he said this, you can't, no way can you say that random processes produced all this. Yeah. And so he directed pans for me. was, it came from out of space. Wow. And uh, so that, that to me would be right now, unless there is some radical change, that would be the, they seem the to only be prim- possibility I right now.
1: They seem to be priming the pump too, for, for alien thinking, I mean, it's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous at this point. Right. Every new. I mean, the the news, the federal government, even they seem to be priming the pump to be releasing information that uh, aliens are our ancestors from beyond, and they dropped us off here, or whatever the thinking is. I mean, it's it's decidedly unbiblical. Um, Christians should dismiss it outright. Uh, but it seems to be that that seems to be the flow that I have seen at least. News-wise, blogging, YouTube channels, some of the talking heads, they seem to be going. And then, of course, with, um, oh, what was that, the NSA or whatever, some of these videos that have come out with tiny little specks of light where all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. you see it and then it's gone. And, oh, maybe that was, uh, you know, maybe that was it. I don't right. know. With, yeah. with the technology that we have nowadays, you'd think we'd at least capture something with HD footage at this point if it was real.
2: Right, you know, Jesse, I have I have long uh, thought about what we're looking at here uh, is what I I call uh, spiritual naturalism. Mm. In other words, it's a philosophy of naturalism, but we need to have spirit in the box. We need, and that's why, uh, my goodness, look at all of the Hollywood overlooks of cultural naturalism you know whether you're talking about uh, zombies or you're talking uh, about the force yeah. uh, or you're you're talking about superpowers that come from some spiritual realm uh, those kinds of things it's the it's the lack that uh, that man has who's been created in the image of God who has uh, without Christ has that hole in there that understands he's not an insignificant blob on an evolutionary uh, chain that goes nowhere when I die, yeah. uh, and so we want to have something beyond the natural realm, and but without Christ, we start reaching out for aliens. We reach out for um, para- paranoia. What's um, what's it called? Paranormal. Paranormal activity. <laughs> yeah. Right. All of those kinds of of things in order to fulfill. Uh, ful- to fill that void, but it doesn't fill the void, and you and I know it doesn't. Um, but I think I think you're right that uh, that could well you could see the the thrust of everything around us that would lead us uh, to then acknowledge a spiritual naturalism. God didn't do this, but there is something spiritual in the natural realm that we don't know about. Uh, and and that um, you know, so we don't know. It could be. It could be another fifty. Could be another hundred years. Who knows? These this paradigm is well entrenched.
1: Yes, yes, it is. So, when can we expect the next film to come out? And I know last week you said you were actually shooting for this part two. Correct? Are you still is are are you still in pre production? Are you are you, you're shooting right now? What part of the
2: Yes, we have, uh, we have most of the filming done. We'll probably do an, a couple other segments. We may do one in the Tetons. Uh, we may do one in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, but most of the filming is done. There's going to be a lot of animation in this one. Oh. And, uh, and the, the animation is going to be critical because we're primarily asking the question, what was the world like when Noah stepped off the ark? Okay, was it um, was it like our storybooks that we our kids you know where the giraffe is eating leaves in the tree and the foxes are running around and I'm not trying to belittle that but what I'm saying is that Noah stepped off into a world that was destroyed and uh, the world around him was still uh, theologically okay it was uh, the judgment was over but the earth was still you could almost say it it still had pent-up energy in it. Mm -hmm. And so the the mountains hadn't really arisen. The continents were still moving. Uh, Earthquakes uh, beyond anything we can imagine today. Mm -hmm. Volcanoes beyond anything we can imagine. Uh, The precipitation beyond anything we can imagine. The ice sheets, uh, all of those things occurred Mm post-flood. And so what we're trying to do is help people understand that the world we see around us in many cases was shaped by those post-flood forces. And so, uh, in fact, we were just looking at, um, have you ever been to see Pike's Peak? Have you ever seen Pike's Peak? I've been on Pike's Peak, yes. Okay, the, you know the, what they call the Garden of the Gods? Yep. There's very vertical, very beautiful vertical uh, pieces there. Well, those vertical pieces are actually, their layers, sedimentary layers, that are now in a vertical position. They're the same layers that we find in the Grand Canyon. So it's important to people understand. So, you know, animation will allow us to say, okay, let's say we've got all these sedimentary layers like taffy soft, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, uh, Pike's Peak pushes up the, all of those layers and, mm-hmm. it, and, and it may break through or be, the rushing of water that just literally destroys all of this. And so you're looking at it from the side, you have these layers and they and Pike Speed comes up. Well, some of them are still now vertical. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's just like if you go to Rome
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, someone says, Oh, you know, this is the um, you know, the palace, and all there, there, there are two columns there. <laughs> you know, and you say, "Ah, that looked like a palace to me. Well, if you could, if you could, all of a sudden, maybe through some holographic thing, put on, you know, and all of a sudden you see those columns then get filled in with what the palace looked like. Now, now you've got an understanding of what it was. So what we want to do is try to do that same thing. We want to say, okay, here's here's what it looked like post-flood. Then all of a sudden the continents are moving. uh, These plates are, are, are crashing at each other. These mountains start to rise the the layers are still soft and all of this erosion then happens and and guess what we're left with these pieces here yeah so i don't know if that made any sense but if right. you could if you can uh animate that for someone then you can help them get a better picture
1: yeah will you also go into the time that it potentially took for these mountain formations to take place
2: well we won't uh, we won't be specific in that because we don't really know right but what we do know is that uh, the earthquakes and the massive earthquakes, huge volcanoes, those all took place, if we're, if we're uh, talking in, in this time frame, mm-hmm. that uh, post-flood, these events took place within 100, 200 years. Mm-hmm. The Ice Age is forming mm-hmm. uh, very rapidly. Uh, all those ice sheets are being laid down very rapidly. The, earth, the, the oceans are very hot, and then they begin to cool. And so, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, several hundred years, probably after the flood, where the earth is still in this exponential decline. So from the flood, all this kinetic energy, potential energy uh, turmoil in the earth's surface uh, is now declining exponentially down to where we are today.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Where we have very, you know, quite frankly, d- despite the hang ring- hand-wringing that we <laughs> hear about today, uh, you know, the things that are happening today are nothing, mm-hmm. nothing compared to uh, the changes, climate changes, as well as geological changes that occurred in, in the post-flood era.
1: Yeah, and that's actually a, a decent segue. I was going to ask you. So, do you touch on the uh, the god of this age, that being, of course, climate change? Is that at all discussed here in part two? I mean, it seems to be the thing to talk about right now. Uh, or oh, should man, I say, man, not man. to talk? If you don't have the right views, of course, according to some, you're not allowed to talk. But
2: that's correct. Do you uh, uh, on that? Yeah, that whole the 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 uh, climate scare. Yep. Has, um, has taken on a paradigm of its own, you're not allowed to speak against it. Uh, and, but you know, I would really, uh, I was talking to, uh, talking to several of the scientists actually, when we've been filming this piece about the possibility of putting together a documentary uh, on the history of climate change. Mm. And uh, to put in perspective uh, the very minor things that we may be seeing today compared to uh, let's go to the Sahara desert. It yeah. used to be a lush rainforest, you know, okay, that was a climate change. And that was before people were driving SUVs, right? Um, we were just in the green river formation in uh, Utah and Wyoming, uh, looking at the the fossils laid down from the huge Lake there. It's called fossil uh, fossil Lake, um, a huge, huge Lake. Well, it's now a semi-arid area we hmm. uh, you, you, you could talk about the dust bowl we could talk about uh, 1000 BC when there was a global drought yeah. for several years um, so if you could touch on it how should we understand climate
1: change as, as believers as people who see the word who know that as long as the earth exists that seasons will not cease to change as it says in the word how do we as Christians understand climate change
2: well you know i am not a climatologist but i i would at least say this and that is that whenever you cut yourself off from history then you will find yourself even in your own personal life you cut yourself off from the historical picture of who god is then all of a sudden i am i'm am fretful i'm worried i'm i'm getting ulcers you know all of these things. Why? Because I've got this narrow little view of my little slice of life, and and that's why the scripture over and over again. I mean, you know this is remember the former things, those of long ago. Yep. Uh, and uh, Psalm uh, seventy-eight that that says, "Teach these to your children. Look, look at all the things that God has done." You know, we look at we look at two thousand years ago. Look what. Why? Why are we? Why are we moaning and groaning and thinking? Oh my goodness, poor me! Uh, why? Because we lose the historical context of where we are, yeah. and the same is true with with the current climate scare. Yeah. I mean, I just think about this. I mean, yes, that there is there is change that's going on. The glaciers, for example. But if if you are if you are wringing your hands over, um. A mile of glacier melt. <laughs> go back and realize the ice sheets used to cover most of North America. A lot of North right. America. The glaciers have melted thousands of miles. Yeah. If you don't have that context, then you can get caught up. Yeah. Uh, in in the worlds and the flesh and the enemies uh, pulling you away. You know from from not only historical truth, but the truth that God has had given to us. Uh, And, and we also then fail to recognize that there are, you know, quite frankly, there are a lot of people who are making, making out a lot of money off of this.
1: So I was going to ask you, what do you think drives the conversation with these people? What do you think it, because they view it as the science. I mean, it's, you know, there's no disputing (laughs) it's happening. It's it must happen. What drives this?
2: Well, I mean, now we're getting uh, far afield, but this it's a worldview uh, question. Yeah. You know, there is a worldview that is, um, that is driving a lot of what's happening in our culture today. And it's, it's a worldview that's rooted in Marx. Yeah. Uh, it's a worldview that um, uh, begins with the fundamental notion of pitting people against each other, uh, in Marx's day, it was pitty, uh, pitting, uh, you know, the workers against the, you know, the bourgeoisie, proletariat bourgeoisie. Uh, and then um, when that didn't really work in in our culture, because, you know, our workers, man, they were rich compared to the rest of the world. Right. And somebody come in and say, you know, you're oppressed. You're oppressed here. And they say, wait a second, I've got a car, I've got indoor plumbing, I, I have vacations, I, you know, it didn't didn't work. And so, uh, the Franklin School, you're probably aware of all of this, but the Franklin School, the remarks of scholars who came to America tried to figure out why it didn't work here. And um, and they realized, well, because the pitting a worker against uh, against uh, the owner just isn't going to fly here. So they had to come up with another way to create that conflict. And that conflict was rooted in, in um, sexuality and race. Yep. And so they tried to stir up uh hatred in uh in that form well marx also he was a student of hegel and so they believed in evolution but they believe from a historical evolutionary perspective the only way you're going to get that kind of of evolutionary um growth progression is if you have a conflict so mm-hmm. Marx, one of Marxist things we do is have a conflict between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Uh, okay. The, the Marxism uh, uh, that is here today uh, is trying to pit um, minorities against um, white, straight, cisgender Christian males. Yep. And um, so that, so you have to have a crisis. You have to, you have to call people to a crisis. Well, So this worldview constantly longs for a crisis because the crisis will result in increased power at the elite level. And so, and that's exactly what happens in the, um, you know, we had, remember the healthcare crisis, you know, that's been almost supplanted by other crises, but the healthcare crisis, who who grew in power as a result of the healthcare crisis? Well, the you know the governmental elite. Yeah. Who grow? Who's growing now in terms of the the climate crisis? Well, here we have the same thing going on. Now yeah. there are people making a lot of money from that as well. So I think you have to also look at the worldview motives that are going on here recognizing also that we as believers have been given the responsibility to be stewards of the world that God has given to us. Right. So we are the greatest uh, environmentalists. We should be the greatest environmentalists in the world. But we also have the the common sense that God has given to us. We've got the historical perspective that God has given to us. And uh, and we therefore walk uh, in the light of that, And, um, and we don't wring our hands, you know, because we've lost our our perspective, but we care. We, you know, God, if you you read the book of Jonah, God cared about the cattle. Remember he's, he listed there, you know, all these people and many cattle as well. God is concerned. Why? Because he created it all. Yeah. And so we should be concerned as well. We should, we should treat animals in a, uh, in the way that we're supposed to create animals. We're stewarding the world around us. Yes, we should, we should do that. But that's not what's going on. That's not what's going on here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Well, if you have any, do you have any closing remarks or anything else that you'd like to say? I (laughs) wish, I wish Courtney was, was here. She actually, we have a one-year-old that woke up. So uh, she has been tending to the baby.
2: I, I understand that. I, I didn't think that I'd said something to offend. (laughs)
1: You didn't offend her. I mean, I know it was right when we started talking about the age of the earth and you said thousand years, she didn't storm. No,
2: I know. I I said, wow. Okay. Uh, well, uh, you give Courtney my best. Um, I would say at this point, no, we've, we've covered a lot. We've covered up probably a whole lot more than you even wanted to cover. It was
1: great. It was really Uh, good,
2: but I do. Uh, I mean, I don't, the Is Genesis History website is not mine, so this is not. I'm not profiting from this. But for people who are interested in that topic, I really encourage them to go to the Is Genesis History website, and you will find a wealth of uh, information there. Uh, mm-hmm. If you if you want to stay in touch with my website deltaga.com, I'll keep you apprised as as to um, the new film that's coming out. Yes, uh, and uh, also the engagement project that we just finished. So. I would, just, I would just offer those to people if, they, if they're interested in that. And uh, thank you for the time.
1: Absolutely. Dr. Tackett, it's been a sincere pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. God bless. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney.
0: It is our duty through our schools to create a new one a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.